This is a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to fubarradio.com. You're listening to Femi on Fubar Radio. So the United Kingdom will only leave without a deal on the 29th of March if there is explicit consent in the House for that outcome. At a national level, the Conservative Party appears to have abandoned attempts to modernise or to broaden its appeal and has become less tolerant and more inward-looking. He needs to change the Labour Party, and there are things we need to do. I mean, firstly, we've got to eradicate anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism in all its forms. Far-right founder of the English Defence League, Tommy Robinson, has been permanently banned from Facebook and Instagram for repeatedly breaking policies on hate speech, so Facebook has reported. Comic Relief is a 20-year-old formula that asks comedians to, to perform and sends celebrities, most often white, out to Africa. And that image evokes for lots and lots of ethnic minorities in Britain a colonial image, a white, beautiful heroine holding a black child. Comic Relief is doing very little to educate its public. Hey, it's Femi from Our Future Our Choice. You may know me from Our Future Our Choice because we are the group that is calling for a new referendum with the youth movement for people's vote. Now, I'm joined by Holly Thomas, who's a journalist from the um, New Statesman and CNN. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. So how have you found this week in news? Um, difficult to keep up with. There have just been so many things. I, I cover stuff um, on the US side as well. So mm. keeping up with Westminster at the same time has been... Uh, pretty ridiculous, um, but yeah, no, it's just been a complete mishmash from every angle. Yeah, I would our, say. Our, our, our politics has pretty much gone to beyond chaos. I mean, in terms of Brexit, um, you've had Theresa May having concluded the deal in November, still saying that she wants to leave it until the 12th of March, 17 days before we actually leave the EU, before Parliament can decide what to do with a deal that it knows everybody hates. So utter chaos. Yes, exactly. And um, if there's any possibility of an amendment for a second referendum, that has to be decided before the 12th of March. Mm. So people kind of have to get their house in order to decide what they want before then, which is so unlikely. Mm. Um, so it all sort of feels like lip service, really, to that option. So. Well, I mean, it, what's happening right now is they now, the only way that they can actually deal with this is, is an extension, which means yeah. that um, you're pretty much going to end up in a situation where Parliament's going to ask for an extension the EU is going to say an extension for what exactly? Because we spent the past two years um, trying to negotiate mostly with ourselves before we can figure out what to negotiate with the EU. And then the only circumstances in which the EU is going to allow an extension is basically if we got a clear plan and we can't commit that we're going to um, actually have a deal or conclude or agree a deal in any sort of reasonable time. So for me, I actually think as a, um, a new referendum is pretty much the most likely outcome purely because the only circ- the only way you can say we know we'll have a, a clear outcome by a certain date is if we say well on this date we'll actually have an answer from the people. Yes, absolutely. I think um the problem with basically every option is that uh none of them really do too much to frighten the EU, but they all kind of cut off our own nose to spite our face. Mm. So even if um you know, if if for example we do get a second referendum, um, rounding up enough uh, Tory MPs in favour of that to offset the 28 Labour MPs who have already said that they are not gonna not gonna go for it anyway mm. because they represent Leave constituencies. It, it's sort of it's it you know God, I would really like to see another referendum, <laughs> um, but it, it's just the sort of the amount of legwork that goes into oh, every yeah. single step. Um, for every single option in such a short space of time seems sort of insurmountable in basically every direction. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, this was never going to be a, in a situation where politicians as a whole would agree on one, on one course of direction. No. It was always going to be, okay, this option gets ruled out, this option gets ruled out, this option gets ruled out, and eventually we'll end up with the least unpopular option. Yeah. And, and, that, will, <laughs> and that will somehow manage to squeeze its way through. Uh, Elsewhere in the news, we've got, I mean, politics is literally crumbling before our eyes. You've got, you've got the major parties splintering off into smaller parties with the new creation of the new independent group. What do you think? What's your take on them? Uh, TIG. Um, well, the, their name is completely hilarious. <laughs> um, I, think, I think they're really interesting. I think um, the implications for Labour, especially, for them to have set themselves up, they're sort of a little bit... I mean, they're more clear on anti-Semitism than they are on Brexit. Mm. And I think that, at the very moment, that Labour is looking so terrible um, on that score, is really interesting because it kind of... um, 
it, it factions the Labour Party even more because they're splitting their attention between what do we do on Brexit and then also can someone please take a strong stand mm. against anti-Semitism. And then you have yeah, Tig randomly in the middle who are now kind of looking eye to eye in ter- with the DUP in terms of their represent- representation in Parliament, mm. which is also kind of interesting how yeah. they'll play off against each other. And um, and yeah, they kicked things off with a visit to Nando's, which is just <laughs> the most random thing. And what I found really funny about that, there was clearly such a sort of, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're so centrist and we, we really like get like the people. And then so many people saw the photo of them at Nando's and were like, why are you buying bottled water? Bottled water? It's free. Like, you have no <laughs> idea what you're doing. No one's got peri-peri chips. <laughs> like, they, yeah. So, I mean, again, kind of chaotic um, mm. but I think that um, what Tig says about how the other parties are handling everything is kind of the most interesting thing about Tig Yeah, I mean for me, the creation of new parties is only one it's a step in the sort of the right direction, Yeah, but it doesn't solve the main problem which is first past the post I mean, yeah. it, I mean a, a new party isn't, it simply isn't going to get the votes unless Unless we have, a, we get rid of first past the post because in order for to get any seats, you need to win outright in your constituency, and with a party that has that little funding, it's going to be it's going to be an uphill battle. Yes, exactly, and I think also um, it's it's weird because it kind of mirrors the problem um, that the Remain campaign had with Brexit is that um, setting setting yourself up in opposition to something is not the same as having a clear we are for this message mm. and a clear we are for this message is is much more effective usually in terms of the public because it just it continues to be really confusing for a public who you know if you're just looking casually it's really really difficult to get any grip on who wants what you know what what anyone's you know what what the positive messages are mm. um because t- t- yeah tig is coming at everything from an opposition I mean everyone's oppositional but it's much more about we don't like this rather than we like this yeah I mean well yeah that, I mean that, that's the conversation we definitely need to have in terms of what do we do moving forward not just do we like Brexit do we like anti-semitism obviously no but yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, but the point is that we need to have a conversation <coughs> about what we actually do want we do want to stand for as a country and that's just not happening here because everything is so consumed with this, these negative feelings around the, around the topics that are coming up it's, it's more negative but this is the floor is yours we want to hear from you so if you want to um, tweet at FUBAR Radio uh, or tweet or tweet at me because we're going to be talking about security this week. Um, you can you know, can also call us on 0330-223-0200 and get involved. We want to hear from you. Also in the news uh, this week, we also had an issue regarding comic relief. Yes. Um, so basically, uh, Stacey Dooley did uh, went to um, several places where Comic Relief had um, had done some work and uh, to basically to brought to showcase basically the work that's been done done over there, and basically. David Lammy wasn't particularly happy with it. And the idea that it shows the white saviors as being um, the champions of um, the progression in Africa, uh, and that that was somehow racist in there was an inherent racism in, in that what would be your view on that um i i i would say that david lamry is right mm. i i think that um it just demonstrates a kind of a really really outmoded approach to these things mm. um it, it sort of feels a bit bob geldof it's like you know mm. it's it, that's sort of a 30 year old approach um and as lamry pointed out there are so many um kind of celebrities or you know comedians or hmm. uh, prominent people in Africa who could have done the job that Stacey Dooley did. Hmm. So why was it Stacey Dooley? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I mean, for, for, for me, I was, I was in two minds when I heard this story because on, on one side, the attitude that the only good things in Africa come from the West is a very harmful one which we need to address. But at the same time, the purpose of that comic relief documentary was to showcase the good that is being done to um, well, it showcases the goods that's being done in order to encourage people to donate to those causes. Now, that is in and of itself a noble cause, and if and, and if it requires people to showcase that good, I think it's I think it's good to do that. But also, you need to it's it. It, there's a there's a, there's an element of lose lose in there, and that you can't really show people how much they can help while also showing people that it's not just your help that makes America, that makes Africa good. Makes America makes makes, yeah. <laughs> makes make Africa great again. <laughs> if only we could make everywhere great again. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. No. I think that's true. I mean, it is. 
it's nuanced. I think it was it was just disappointing that it just it just felt outmoded. I think that mm. was the real problem. Mm. It, it just felt like a, it was. Um, I sort of had like Green Book winning Oscars flashbacks of it's just a bit like this is kind of what feels like a safe way to do it feels very sort of like oh this is what we've always done so mm. we'll just automatically do it the same way and just a little bit more thought about how it might look well let me um, just take D- David Lammy's words I mean he says my problem with it with British celebrities being flown out by comic relief to make these films is that it ends up it sends a distorted mess- image of Africa which perpetuates the old idea from cl- from a colonial era comic relief is a 20 year old formula that, that asks comedians to perform and, and, and send celebrities most often and white out to Africa, and that image evokes a lot of ethnic minor- evokes for, for lots of ethnic minorities in in, the, in Britain a colonial image of white beautiful heroine holding a holding a black child with no agency, no parent in sight, and parents in sight. I, I gotta say, I I, I, I see his point, um, but like I said, at the same time, you've got to say, all right, given that if you do look at towards the, the colonial past, you've got to recognize that there is a degree of something is owed to those countries. And so and so it's important that we do support those countries, but at the same time, we need to make it clear that yeah. <laughs> those countries should be standing for themselves as well and they have a lot to offer the world. And it's not just that the only good things there come from us. Yes, exactly. It was clearly well-intended. I think it was just that the execution was maybe a bit mm. of a misfile. It may be... It, a slightly better approach would have been to pair um, mm. British celebrities you know just I can see the point of having someone with a higher profile mm. that people in um, Britain would recognise and go oh yeah no I I like her if mm. she's doing that then I'll pay attention but maybe just sort of pairing pairing them with sort of a uh, an equivalent person in yeah. Africa might have been a way to that's just actually, balance that's it up. A, that's a pretty good idea. Uh, I mean, yeah. that would have been that would have made more made, made sense. Uh, another story would be the fact that MPs are set to get a raise. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I think if I mean a lot of people's raises are contingent on you know, for example, hitting targets. Mm. Um, and if you were to look at how MPs are performing at the moment, I think most people would find it difficult <laughs> to justify, um, yeah. uh, you know, as, you know, food banks are, food bank users on the rise, uh, social services are absolutely crippled. Um, it's quite, I, when, if you were to ask a sort of someone on the street, what, you know, is your MP doing an amazing job? <laughs> I suspect that very few people would say, yeah, God, you're absolutely loving killing the game. Mm. Yeah. Um and and I think also what's really, really distasteful is that civil servants who do, you know, most of the actual legwork and are much, to, to start with, paid, you know, a fraction of what MPs are, mm. um, their pay rises are capped at 1%. So the disparity in that, it, it just looks really bad. It, it's literally a f- reflection of what we're saying in the wider society of the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I mean, it's why you keep hearing the phrase the political class. Yeah. The idea that, that despite you've got a parliament that is devoting all of its energy to a Brexit, that it knows the vast majority of its civil services have concluded will hurt the country and hurt the people they're supposed to represent and they're devoting all of their energy into that and you never hear a thing about the NHS about housing about yeah. poverty homelessness the democratic vo- deficit in the voting system all the issues that people actually care about and they need, desperately need to fix those are getting zero airtime zero political capital and the MPs who are pushing this Brexit train along sucking out all the oxygen from the country they're the ones getting a raise while people are still on food banks. Exactly, exactly. They're they're effectively being paid to navel gaze, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's sort of it's all about them. They're paying much more attention to the fights that they're having with each other and who is you know playing off power than actually doing the job of serving the people that they should. Exactly. And speaking of uh, MPs who are not exactly doing what I would hope they would do, Dominic Raab today on um, Radio Four, Radio Four Today, said that the EU is being dishonourable in terms of uh, how it's using the Northern Ireland situation uh, to force the UK into whatever to do whatever it wants. I found that to be disgusting. I agree. Um, this is, uh, I, just to uh, be completely upfront, this is not a subject on which I would claim 
any expertise or close to expertise mm. on the face of it yes I agree I think anyone I think Dominic Raab calling out people's principles for it to start with is just not something he really has a right to do mm-hmm. and yeah ag- again it's it's literally using issues which really really affect and are really close to people's hearts affect real people's lives and using it as a political football if you know that there are people who who lost family members in the in the in the troubles at the end of the last century 3600 people died and that that was yeah. put to end by a good friday agreement in 1998 that we signed explicitly as EU members, and you were yeah. the, you were in charge of making us no longer be EU members. And you know that people in Northern Ireland are terrified about what that would do, and so they voted by fifty six percent to stay in the EU. And you think that this issue is just some tool that the EU is using to dishonourably gain a to gain, gain a degree of, answer, of of advantage when it's us that's deciding to put it in jeopardy. It's just ridiculous. Exactly. It's it's completely inhumane. And again, just it really, really demonstrates the level of detachment of, you know, the political class. Mm. They're completely disassociated from how everything looks and more importantly, how everything really, really affects real people. Mm. It's again, it's navel gazing. It's how does how does this work or not work for me? Not what are the actual real life heart-trending implications of what I'm saying. And the, and the idea that, um, I mean, let's just, just for people, just to, a bit, as a bit of background. <laughs> so in Northern Ireland, there was, let's say, a disagreement of whether or not Northern Ireland should be officially part of the UK or part of or a united island of Ireland. Now, that led to a lot of violence over centuries. And in the last, um, ten, in the last 30 years or so of the last century, uh, there were 3,600 deaths. Now, they came to an agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, or the Belfast Agreement, which basically says that um, Northern Ireland is officially part of the UK, but there's no physical infrastructure on the border with the Republic of Ireland. So people who want it to be United Ireland, they can see that there's no physical barrier, so they feel like it's one country, but at the same time, officially, it's part of the UK. Now, if we start importing products from uh, America, like beef, for example, which doesn't meet the EU standards, and so there's big trucks of beef in Northern Ireland which don't meet the standards of the EU, then the only way you stop that, stop, stop massive smuggling for them to gain a, a commercial advantage is to check stuff at the border, which means that by leaving the EU system, we have endangered the peace process. So to say that the EU is using that in some sort of dishonourable way when it's us that is endangering a peace process that put an end to 3,600 deaths is something I can't forgive. And also, especially coming from Dominic Raab, who by his own admission didn't understand the extent to which we depend on Cali border trade, now wants to pretend like the, the border issues in Northern Ireland aren't an issue when he knows he hasn't got a great track record on that particular topic. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's gross. <laughs> it's really gross. Yeah, um, and yeah, moving forward, the Brexit there's going to be an upcoming vote on the on the twelfth of uh, of March. Uh, in fact, we basically when we when we realised just how crazy this was going to be, um, we actually our future choice we um, got about two hundred or so young people to fill the halls of Parliament um, on Wednesday, uh, basically speaking to MPs, telling them basically give us a vote. I mean, it's the most logical thing. Um, if the if the deal is toxic to Brexit voters, if no deal is too irresponsible, the only thing they can do is basically wash their hands um, and say, "All right, we tried. You guys have a go." Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think the what's the average age of an MP now? It's quite old. I can't remember what it mm. is, but it's quite old. And um, I think it, it's it speaks volumes of sort of how it, it's it's a bit like um, the question with climate change that they're not actually realistically going to have to deal with the no. um, fallout of the things that they're doing. Um, as we've discussed, they make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, it will take a while for everything to completely unravel, by which point it will be irrelevant for those people. Whereas for, you know, the young the young people yeah. you mentioned, yeah. this is going to impact the re- potentially the rest of their lives. Yeah, the average age um, of, the, of an MP at the general election in 2017 was 50. Right. And, and, and that is the just above the Brexit voting age group, where people under the age of 49 and, and as a whole voted to stay in the EU. And we're talking about the most economically active and most economically vulnerable part of society. I mean, people in the age 18 to 24... They are just starting out in careers. They don't have. They don't have a stable. They don't. They're looking for stable jobs. They're looking. They're looking to to get it to get a house. Get get on, get get on the housing market, and 
an economic hit is going to affect them for the rest of their life because they because they just they haven't as, as established as people who are like 50 who have their jobs secured who, who've been working for their pension they're the ones who are protected and they're endangering us exactly and every measure that sort of um that mps kind of claim is useful for young people. It's like, oh, we're going to build loads more houses. Mm. We don't need loads more houses. There are loads of houses that are standing empty. Mm. Um, that the, work, you know, the value of which has just been pushed up so much by inflation. And these new houses that are being built all cost. You know, the affordable homes, are usually some, it's approaching a half a million pounds. And mm. what young person on, you know, potentially zero hours contract, earning minimum wage, just a bit more, even double, triple, four times the minimum wage is going to be able to afford that. Like, they do not have any idea what it's like for young people yeah. well, um, I mean, in the UK today. Well, I mean, they, they, we clearly do need, we do need to build houses, but as you said, actually affordable housing. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean and, and for me, the, the main issue is because we're so centralized around London, because the industry comes here, it pushes the price the prices up here, and, and so houses don't get built elsewhere because the industry isn't there to support that. And so if they actually built houses and built industries in those areas outside of London, in the places that have been forgotten places, largely that voted for Brexit, then the country has a hell of a lot more, more chance of actually succeeding, which for me is, 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 the, big, is the biggest issue. Um, also, Chris Wilmington. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, he's, he, wait, was he, he went, then he came back, and then he went and then he came back and he was fired. What yeah. exactly happened? <laughs> uh, I, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, it, it's just, again, it's just a question. You sort of wonder how on earth it got to this stage. It's, it's a bit like Ken Livingston. Like how mm. many times did he have to say Hitler and Zionism mm. before he was eventually suspended? And um, I think it was Margaret Hodge who um, pointed out earlier this week that Chris William has... Sorry, Chris Williamson has real form for this. You know, this is by no means the first time that he's expressed anti-Semitic views. And the fact that there was even a pause before he was suspended, mm. again, like really, really gave so much. Um, uh, it, it, it just handed um, power to Tig. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Again, um, uh, you know, the, the one thing that we, I mean, not the one thing, but one one thing that um, they have come out really, really um firmly against his anti-Semitism and it's just astonishing that when there is so much going on for the Labour Party and everything is just so precarious and there is such an obvious anti-Semitism problem which again again, it's like complete detachment do you not realise how com- how offensive this is mm. to such a huge proportion of the population it's so so wrong and they just to dither before suspending him it's just mad i don't understand well i mean at least you i mean you've got people like tom watson who are who are who are standing up and and, and taking yeah. a stand which 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 is good so it's it's a it's a problem that ex- that exists but i'm hoping I'm yeah. hoping that at least with the pressure that's on now, maybe they'll be moving in the right direction soon. Maybe, yeah. I mean, and also um, people like Jess Phillips have been pretty vocal about it. Um, mm. But I think it, it's, again, it's a quest- It's a case of Corbyn, um, uh, Corbyn supporting his mates. Like, he, he comes on really firmly on anti-Semitism mm. unless he's a fan of them. And Chris Williamson has championed Corbyn and has kind of booed um any you know critics of him he's he's sort of yeah he, he's been a supporter and so he got leeway and it's just a really really wrong way to run a party well i mean yeah the, the, we just have to the, the racism that exists in parliament is something that is needs to be dealt with immediately yeah. I mean, you've got boris johnson who talks about pickaninnies with watermelon smiles you've got uh anne-marie morris oh, who talks letterboxes yeah yeah and then and calling, and calling, yeah calling them letterboxes you've got um anne-marie morris talking about the nigger in the wood sh- wood pile or what is it something like that oh, and the nigger, yeah and that, and that wasn't even the first time there was another tory mp yeah. who had said that a couple of years prior um so it's apparently just apparently just standard tory lingo <laughs> exactly and, it, and it's one of those uh, things again that like it only seems like it's really being picked up on now because it's kind of because it's become such an open topic um, publicly it's only it's, it's, it's from ex- it's external pressure mm. um, that is making people kind of you know some some MPs sit up and sort of push for improvement on this mm. because clearly this has been, you know, this is a really endemic problem that's been going on for years and years and years. And it's only because 
you know, there's just been a bit more publicity around it now that they're sort of thinking, oh, God, I suppose we should because, you know, people won't vote for us otherwise. Mm. The motivation, again, is just completely wrong and completely yeah, self-serving. Exactly. It's, it's just wrong. That's it. That's why you should not tolerate it. Well, um, <laughs> um, Holly, Holly Thomas, thank you, thank you very much. I mean, racism is a... Uh, it's clearly an issue that, I mean... You've got people rising up like Tommy Robinson, which is absolutely ridiculous, um, and he's getting yeah. more and more, more and more fame. I mean, I mean, today, f- fortunately, Facebook has decided to ban him, but he's taken that as being he's now playing the victim. Uh, Holly Thomas, thank you very much, for, very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having let's me. Let's listen to Tommy Robinson trying to claim that he's somehow the victim here. Uh, <laughs> we knew it was coming. The whole world now has seen. Within 24 hours of us releasing Panodrama Online, Panodrama, a documentary that categorically proved with evidence the establishment working with the media, working with far-left George Soros-funded organisations to destroy the people speaking against them. The proof and evidence was there. Within 24 hours, we had one and a half million online views. By now, that would have been 10 million. And within 24 hours, I'm completely deleted from the internet. The censorship is real. We've got them rattled. They fear us. They genuinely fear it. They fear a movement that's growing. Now, the message is simple. When they raided my house three times in the first six months of the English Defence League, they thought that would stop me. It didn't. When they put me in prison and locked me in a room and had me nearly beaten to death, they thought that would stop me. It didn't. When they took away my Twitter, they thought it would stop me. It didn't. They took away my PayPal. That nearly stopped me. 70% of the donations disappeared. We've just produced the most powerful documentary anyone's seen from us. It didn't stop us. Will banning us from Instagram and Facebook stop me? No, it won't. It's come earlier than we thought. So now we need to fight back. We're already making plans. We've already made plans. We're looking at the possibility of a, of a massive demonstration in London against the censorship with figures coming over from America. People are being censored everywhere. This isn't about Tommy Robinson. This is about anyone who opposes mass, mass migration. Anyone who speaks out about Islam is being censored across the world. It goes against the globalist agenda. Today, they've banned my book. They're literally burning books. That's what they're doing. You can go on Amazon and buy Mein Kampf, Hitler's book. You can no longer buy Mohammed's Quran, Why Muslims Kill for Islam. This is the way our society is heading. Oh, poor Tommy. Poor Tommy. He's, he's, su- he's such a delicate little flower. <laughs> um, I'm joined in the studio by El- Elizabeth Bra from the Royal, um, in- Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies. I'm joined by Andre Walker, who is a Brexit supporter, was involved in the formation of Breitbart in the UK. I was, yes. Yes. Uh, and um, Azad Ali from, from Cage UK. Hi. Uh, pleasure to meet you all. So we're going to be discussing uh, security issues today. But, I mean, first, about Tommy Robinson, I mean, his narrative around uh, um, Islam uh, and he believes that all, Isla- all people from, uh, from that particular faith are somehow pose a threat. If you could say one thing to Tommy Robinson, Azad, what would it be? Uh, you're a symptom, not the cause. Um, I think it's important to, whilst Tommy Robinson... He's a petty criminal. He's been mm. in and out of prison. Um, it's important not to give him airtime uh, air and focus. What we need to look at is actually the structures that have given the voice to him. Because if you look at the, some of the things he's saying, it's nothing different from what politicians are saying. Mm. It's nothing different from policies that are coming in place. So the issue of Islamophobia and the way Muslims are being treated in the UK is a structural problem, not just uh, what you know these ranters are saying on the street. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 w- I would thoroughly agree. I mean, we saw... The, the topic was touched upon in uh, when Liam Neeson had his little thing uh, with black people when he said that he treated he wanted he basically wanted to go out and kill a black person because yeah. of what one black person had done. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's that idea that you tarnish an entire race because you've looked at. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the symptom of that, and this was actually it was Trevor Noah that, that pointed this out on on his show. He said that. If the only time you see a black person is in a uh, is on a police is on a police camera mm. on on TV or as a gangster in a movie, if the only time you you mm. see a Muslim is when it's on the news and it's related to terrorism, yeah. then that is your experience exactly. of that of that particular demographic, yeah. and that will create a system whereby people like Tommy Robinson will be able to go on air and say, well, this is this yeah. is all you know of them. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah this is are. this is something that's proven academically as well. Mm. Uh, one, one of the reports, a, a huge report that Lancaster University did on mm. on studies of media bias. Uh, what what they found is for every twenty one stories that were written about Muslims, uh, only one of them was positive. Um, and even that positive story about the Muslim is was positive because the Muslim they were portraying wasn't really following Islam. Mm. So they were also socially engineering what form of Islam is acceptable. Mm. So this demonization, this othering of Muslims, whether it's uh, Muslim women being otherized as submissive, you know, they don't have their own thoughts and their own minds, mm. they don't make their choices, or young people, you know, vulnerable to radicalization and everything else. And Muslim men, they're always violent. You know, every mm. time you see or hear a story about a Muslim man, they're always portrayed as being violent, so, uh, uh, you know, savages. They don't have, you know, a thought process and mm. things like that. So this takes a toll. Yeah. And, and Andre, how do you feel about the narrative around um, Islamophobia and how um, Muslims are treated in the media? Well, I think I think there's there's no doubt that there is a concern about it. I, I, funnily enough, I actually agree with the the view on Tommy Robinson that he's a symptom. And I always think one of the great things or the sad things about Tommy Robinson is how it all started mm. with I think it was the Luton Defence League or whatever it was. The Anglian Regiment comes back to Luton and loads of people are there to cheer them on. Mm. Amjam Chowdhury and probably about four people go to shout abuse and say they're baby killers and whatever. And obviously, mounting a protest that is clearly illegal in terms of the abuse that he's shouting and the harassment. Of course, what Robinson's angry about is not the Muslim community, it's the police's failure to take action against Anjam Chowdhury. I suspect if you were to turn around, the police on that occasion, of course, said, well, the Muslims would be offended if we stopped them protesting. I suspect if you'd gone to the mosque and asked them whether they thought it was appropriate for people to hurl abuse at the Anglian Regiment, pretty much 100% of the people you spoke to would have objected to it. So I think time and time again, we see that the police and the authorities make significant mistakes mistakes and then blame the Muslims. And I'll give you a really good example. If you look at victims of crime, there are two ways that you increase the number of victims. You either have a large number of perpetrators or a larger amount of time for them to perpetrate. If police and social services decide that they will not arrest a Muslim paedophile at all in Rotherham, then those guys are going to have more victims by definition. It doesn't mean there's more Muslim paedophiles. The reason there's more victims is because there has been a policing policy that, ha- that, that would inevitably create more victims. But then what really annoyed me about Rotherham was this. Then these people turned round and said, we did it for the Muslims. Well, hang on a second. I didn't see the mosque or the imam or anyone from the Muslim community demanding that these people never be arrested. What has happened is a group of liberal white apologists has run this ridiculous strategy and then landed the Muslims in it and blamed them for it which I think is absolutely disgusting So would you say that um, um, Tommy Robinson isn't actually um, Islamophobic in any way? Well whether he is somebody who's genuinely racist and genuinely hate-filled, I'm not sure about. Mm. I, think his, I think his problem is, and certainly when, when UKIP comes along, the idea that you would have somebody who's a convicted criminal effectively on the board of your political party. I mm. think the, the fundamental point is, the issue here is community relations. The issue here is not the fact that one person is gobbing off. You know, if community relations were better, if there wasn't issues, like I've just laid out with Rotherham, if there wasn't the issue over the Anjam Chowdhury thing at the Anglin Regiment, and you hear loads of other examples, then somebody like Tommy Robinson becomes irrelevant. I always get the sense from Tommy Robinson that if he could, he'd just go back to his sunbed shop and n- never be heard from again. But, I mean, By the way, that's a good piece of knowledge, isn't it? That he owns a sunbed shop and that's his business. <laughs> but I mean, I, I would I would say that his his views have been a little suspect. I mean, for example, I mean, there's this, there's this compilation that was made of things that he said. It's not a refugee crisis, it's an invasion of Europe by military aid Muslim men. What they're doing now in our country is raping their way through it. Taking a Syrian refugee, I hope you don't get raped. Let's not pretend we're importing people from Iceland. We're not. We're importing barbarians. Because you walk in London, I walk around London, I think where are the men? Where are the English people? It's not an English city anymore anyway. His country, his capital, it's not your country or your capital. You're part of an invasion into our country, Sadiq. So that, I mean, just to slightly disagree with Andre there, I mean, he, he is a racist and Islamophobe. There is mm. no two, two ways about it. Mm. And I think, I mean, these kind of things prove it, uh, yeah. that, that he is. And, you know, he, he, what, what I, I didn't want to underplay that, you know, he's not a racist or an Islamophobe. Mm. What I wanted to 
overplay and bring focus on and especially for this is something a lot of young people actually do pick up that they see the hypocrisy um, so you, you had recently a, a Tory MP saying oh we've got no Islamophobia in our party why because we've got Sajid Javid as a home secretary it's like oh I've got a black friend you know mm. that, that kind of attitude yeah. uh, it, it's, it's nonsensical the Muslim Council of Britain actually documented evidence of Tory party Islamophobia Baroness Warsi who used to be uh, the leader of the Tory party the chairwoman of the Tory party left saying, you know, Islamophobia is rife in her party and everything else. So, you know, this denial by establishment types, this, and, and you know, we need to look at how uh, these guys are always constantly getting away with it, and the focus somehow always goes onto these, you know, street yeah, I mean, I mean, isn't Let me just say this very quickly. Isn't Sajid Javid a victim of Islamophobia from the Muslim community as well? The number of times I've heard he's quite, not Muslim quite, enough. And, and, and I mean, I, I, a cognitive I, dissonance I, I, I'm trying to figure I, out. I, I, appeared, <laughs> I appeared on a television program where they were ranting on and on about the fact that he drinks alcohol. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's like, oh, he's not done this for the Muslims, he's not done that, you know. All all the guy that is, doesn't make some, people uh, Islamophobic against him. What people might be doing is pointing out that, you know, if he's saying he's a Muslim, he's not practicing it very well, you know. Since you asked earlier what we would uh, tell Tommy Robinson if we had a chance to give him a piece of advice, I think uh, time and again, if you don't interact with the other side, you will demonize them. And mm. I mean, just look at Trump. So f- for months he called uh, Kim jong Oh, little rocket man, and then they met, and they sort of discovered, oh, actually, we are quite good friends. <laughs> we could get along, and it's like that within any given Western country. I think we have all these tensions because communities mm-hmm. don't interact a lot. We live in in, uh, in stovepiped communities often. I mean, there is obviously interaction, but there should clearly we, we be more. We don't talk enough. We don't we don't talk enough, and and, exactly. and 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 that is what you see in this whole war on terror. Uh, thing. If you, if you look at what Bush uh, mentioned and Rumsfeld mentioned, you know, he mentioned crusade and everything. This this whole phrase, war and terror. If you, if you just look at it, the way the way we've seen it, experienced it, this interventionist, you know, white savior complex that you know going out there. We have destruction across the world. You know, Afghanistan is destroyed. Iraq. All of this is based on nonsense. I think, mm. Rusi, so you guys actually did a study. The UK, for me, actually mm. spent over thirty billion pounds in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, with that money, like we could have employed five thousand nurses for the, all of their career. Mm. We could have actually had for ten years uh, free tuition for all higher education. Except we wasted money in Afghanistan, yeah, which is being, on, according to Rusi, strategic I'll, I'll, failure. The, the, the war on terror remember started when al-Qaeda attacked the, 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 the Americans in a way that was absolutely despicable right the, the truth of the matter is you can't as a sensible country but the reaction you can't, you was can't, even more despicable you can't as a sensible country effectively guys based in Afghanistan attacked the United States of America on September the 11th the Americans had to respond right there's the, no the way point they responded saying, well I think I think the stupid thing no the stupid the stupid thing that they did was this idea of nation building. They cleared out the terrorists in Afghanistan relatively quickly and the reason that they effectively lost the Afghan campaign, you're probably a better expert on it than me, the reason that they lost is because the objective changed. They said, well we're not clearing out the terrorists anymore, we're now nation building and I think that's where they got into it. Elizabeth, what's your your view in terms of how America in general and the West responded to 9-11 in terms of um, the war on terror since 2001? Well, I know it's a broad topic, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Come back to me in an hour. So the Afghanistan invasion, I think, it was a clear response to 9-11. And, of course, Iraq is a completely different matter. Why did Iraq have to be invaded? And and so I I was a journalist at the time living in Washington, actually during the 9-11 attacks as well. And I remember clearly just before the invasion of Iraq, sitting at the Iraqi National Committee in Washington uh, to interview somebody there, and Ahmad Shalabi walked by. And this is a man who convinced America that it would be a good idea to invade Iraq and that they would be Americans would be uh, welcomed as liberators and that mm-hmm. Iraqi, Iraqis only wanted Saddam to go, only wanted regime change, and then, lo and behold, <laughs> it turned out to be quite different. Mm. But this is the tragedy of, of the so-called war on terror, that the U.S. in... Uh, in, in Iraq, spe- Iraq specifically, they went in thinking that uh, on, on completely 
false premises, not, I think, uh, through any malice of their own, but just maybe well, through naivety. I, I, I would say malice because if you, if you look at the evidence Colin Powell and others actually produced for, for the war in terror, all of that was actually brought in through torture which was later, even the CIA and, and America itself admits that the information was unreliable because yeah. we actually tortured Ibn al-Sheikh. Uh, well, and Libby. it was unreliable because uh, uh, the sources had lied. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> to, exactly. To but but th- th- this is the, the point uh, that I'm trying to make, that, you know, the response, yes, you know, there, there, there has been a terrorist incident, there needs to be a response, but the response also needs to be something that is within, uh, you know, our civilized standards, within international law. This kind of, you know, it, and it's not just been Afghanistan, it's not just just been Iraq, it's been Somalia, it's been Libya, it's been Syria, it's been so many countries that have been, I mean if you can go back to the colonial time you know, and, and, and see, I mean even uh, take a small, uh, 50 years ago, a small island, Chagos Island was actually colonised by the UK, the residents were kicked out convic- uh, turned into an air base where actually Abdul Hakim al-Belhaj was flown from as well who was tortured, which the British government apologised for, all of these things, If you, I mean you just think about it, what's going on here there isn't, so we need to actually, one of the things we say is like, look, you know, we need to actually go back and, and look at the rule of law, look at responses, and things need to be handled in a proportionate manner. For me, um, one of the things that we, um, often, the moment you say the argument that I'm about to, about to make, it gets, you get, get labeled as, oh, well, you're siding with, you're siding with the terrorists. No, I'm, I'm saying, mm-hmm. explain how we get to the where we get to. Mm-hmm. We set in during the period from uh, two thousand uh, September two thousand fifteen to I think March two thousand sixteen. We sold six point eight billion in weapons to Saudi Arabia, which they used to commit war crimes in, in Yemen, killing two thousand eight hundred civilians mm-hmm. um, in an area that is primarily Sunni. Um, and and we bombed hospitals and schools. Well, say we bombed weapons that were made in the UK were used to bomb hospitals and schools, and. It was so bad that we, the, the, they bombed a, a hospital that was run by Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders contacted the Saudis, said, please, this, these are our coordinates. This is where we are. Please don't bomb us. Saudis basically said, yeah, we know where you are. And then they bombed them two more times. Now, in that period, David Cameron went to one of the factories that built the weapons that were going to Saudi Arabia to commit these atrocities and praised the industry. Mm. And... I'm just thinking, if our aim, if you, if, imagine if you were, if you live in Yemen, and you, and your child went to a school that was bombed by a weapon that was made in the UK, and then the next thing you've got uh, ISIS recruit, recruitment agents coming, coming, come knocking, I mean, the UK literally built the weapons that killed your son. This is not helping our national security at all. Absolutely. Well, this is the the tragedy of of, of this whole situation we are in. So, uh, obviously, weapons manufacturers create jobs, and they are seen as a national, uh, strategic national industry. And that's why, for example, the French government promotes French arms manufacturers so vigorously. You know, es- essentially acting as their salesman abroad. Mm. And uh, yes, I mean it's good for France, but is it good for, for anybody else? And so this all then plays a huge role when, you know, we Europeans, EU, well, the UK is about to leave, but the the EU talks about integrating defense industries and so forth. Well, Mm. then you have to agree on, you know, are we going to export to certain countries? Are we not? Mm. And Germany has very strict rules, but actually it's quite interesting. So they they say we don't export to any countries where the weapons will be used uh, in another country, but then it turns out actually it's not really quite like that. So, mm. so the rules actually you are. You hit that the nail on the head. It's a business. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. It, it, war is a business, and, and that is exactly what's taking place here. Uh, I mean, just take Iraq, completely destroyed. Obama actually admitted the unintended consequences of what America did in Iraq was ISIS, uh, uh, and, and, and that's what ISIS came out of. But if you look at Iraq, it's a country that has been totally destroyed uh, using uh, American and British uh, kind of war uh, technology. Now, there's two things. One, Iraq, Iraqis have to pay for all the weapons that we use to destroy their buildings. Second, the Iraqis have to pay for 
uh, in UK and US companies to rebuild all the houses and buildings and everything else that were destroyed with those weapons. So the Iraqis not only get bombed, killed, and, and, and totally displaced, economically they suffer like three times uh, on this as well. So this is, you know, nobody is talking about these things. Nobody is actually highlighting this. And this pretense of, you know, uh, you know we're out there to do... Uh, promote democracy, we're out there to do uh, people's human rights and everything else. It's, it's well, a pretext for business. Well, well, and people and decision makers and the general public may well have believed it. I mean, we all want uh, democracy for everybody, right? Uh, but then, uh, so I think that the the, the misperception of fallacy or, or mistake or, or error was that we, we forgot that actually Saddam Hussein and, and even uh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi was sort of the, the, the very uh, unpalatable, uh, but still effective people who essentially kept their countries together in, mm -hmm. in a very, very unsincere fashion. It's hypocrisy. But look at Egypt, Sisi. He, he actually carried out a coup against a democratically, first time democratically elected uh, president of uh, Egypt. And who's now in bed with Egypt? America is, UK is, everyone is. Well, it, so th this, this is their hypocrisy. I mean, a lot of people, they see through that. But where they're frustrated is that, you know, the people in power, the people in position, the politicians that are supposed to actually be there doing our bidding, you know, rather than telling us what to do, are, you know, kind of using it just to make more money. Look at Tony Blair, how much money. I mean, the guy's a war criminal, okay? Look how much money he's made since he's left the office. This one, is sickening. One thing that I'd say in terms of um, questionable motivations skewing uh, foreign, foreign military intervention in a way that perhaps logical logic doesn't say it should go is actually a quote from Family Guy, um, because, <laughs> which I'm going to play for you now. Ground zero. So this is where the... F this, is, this is basically just them outside where um, the two, two towers fell. Ground zero. So this is where the first guy got AIDS. Peter, this is the site of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Oh, so Saddam Hussein did this? No. The Iraqi army? No. Some guys from Iraq? No. That one lady who visited Iraq that one time? No, Peter, Iraq had nothing to do with this. It was a bunch of Saudi Arabians, Lebanese, and Egyptians financed by a Saudi Arabian guy living in Afghanistan and sheltered by Pakistanis. So you're saying we need to invade Iran? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Um, one topic that's been in the news recently has been a girl called Shemima Begum. Yes. I can imagine that there, well, as in any room, there are going to be some wildly different views as to how we should treat her. Um, so I'm going to start with Elizabeth. What is your take? Uh, my daughter asked last night, who is this jihadi bride? <laughs> I, I tried to explain it. It was very difficult. Mm. Uh, uh, but, so, the the... You know, when you try to teach le uh, teenagers lessons, you say, if you do this, then you will face the consequences. Mm. And, and so this is sort of uh, where we are with her. But I think the reality, as, as we have already discussed, is that if you treat people with, with aggression, then you, you just escalate the, the, uh, the situation further. And I know I'll be contradicted here, but what, what is to... Uh, what is so unreasonable about bringing her back and putting him, her in front of a, a UK court? And that will teach teenagers a lesson that, yeah, it doesn't matter uh, whether you escape or what, what you do. Uh, we have a, a legal system that will take care of you. We don't extract revenge. Uh, we don't act in, in haste. We, you get due process, but you also pay the price for, mm -hmm. for your illegal actions. So you think she should be brought here and tried? Yeah. Okay. Andre? Uh, well, I think there's a, there's a victim here that we always forget, which is the baby. Bear in mind, mm -hmm. at the moment, it's being brought up by a terrorist in a refugee camp uh, where two of its siblings died of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. So I think that whilst I have no interest whatsoever in Shamima Begum in terms of rescuing her, and I think it's right that she is not rescued from the camp, I think it is also right that the baby is rescued from the camp. And I think if that takes... And I know this is a shocking thing to say, but if that takes limited military action, I don't have a problem with that because I think that we need to stand up for that principle. And, and frankly, and 
look, Which I know you can... Which principle is that? The principle in, in is... Invading a camp to... The, prin- the principle is that the baby is a British national that deserves our support. So is Shamima, though. No, no, no. But the difference between Shamima and the baby is this. Shamima chose to be there. The baby did not choose to be there. Mm-hmm. And if Shamima Begin... Hang on a second. Hang on a second. If Shamima Begin... So, let's be honest with you. She's going to beat Sajid Javid in court, isn't she? About removing the British citizenship. But she's got a big hurdle to get through, first of all. There is no consular support for British nationals in that area. If she can make it to a consulate in Turkey, then she is able to take some action. Before then, she's got a problem. What I'm saying is the baby should be transported by us. What she then does is entirely up to her. So you think we should, we should send in the British Army to, 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 fe- to, to fetch the baby? To fetch the baby from the mother's well, arms, simply because... the baby. This is the kidnapping the ba- and rendition the ba- that the baby, the, baby, the, the baby yeah. is not. The baby, I, I mean, the baby is an innocent victim. Wait, wait, wait. Just... Before we get on to how the British military is going to go into um, a foreign camp and steal a baby from mother's arms, let's just go into the ba- the background of the situation. Shamima Begum, at the age of 15, uh, was contacted or contacted people online um, who basically got her to go over to, um, uh, to leave the country and become a child bride of a terrorist. Now, she was 15 at the time, um, which means that at that time, and under the UK law, which we're supposed to repre- rep- represent and respect, she w- she was not legally capable of giving consent to that marriage, or anything that or anything that happened at the time of being being fifteen. Since then, uh, she's she's father she's mothered um, three children, two of whom died. Um, and the question is, given that she was the wife of a terrorist, given that she um, has shown shown no remorse, should she be allowed to come back to Fairly, the UK? Fairly, hang on a second. She is a terrorist, and let me explain why. In this country, the definition of a terrorist is somebody who supports or joins a terrorist organisation. Age 15 in Bethnal Green, she joined the Islamic State terror group. That makes her, by definition, a terrorist. The only problem with that, Andre, is the Metropolitan Police knew about her intention to go yep. if they if if she had broken a law they should have arrested no, no, her no they okay. had no you no no, no. It, so, it, no hang on a second yeah. i think this is an important point there has been a failure to prosecute islamic state terrorists that doesn't mean it's legal to no, be no, an islamic state no. so terrorist. Let, let me make my point first of all that th- is a huge failure i think look what the shamima begum case and we'll talk about her in in, in a minute what it highlights is this uh, structural what i mentioned before racism uh, and and kind of the duplicity approach let me, let me make my point, Andre. You can come back. You can come back. You can Goodness come back. Me, I can't so we have, we her. also have, and obviously we do not advocate uh, citizenship uh, removable at all. But we also have a uh, white uh, guy, Jack Letts, mm. who also joined ISIS. He actually joined as a fighter. Okay, mm. she 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 is not a fighter. He actually joined as a fighter. Yet the UK has not stripped him of his uh, citizenship, and this has been going on for a what, number what, of years. Wait, what's, 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 the, what's the difference? What, what's the difference between exactly? What's the difference between Shamima Begum mm. and Jack Les? Well, I'll tell you the I'll difference. You, no, 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 let I'll me, tell you the let difference. Me my point. He's in prison, so, and so he's not going to come back to the UK. That's the she, difference. She, she, no, she, refugee she, camp's not a prison. She, he is in jail in Kurdistan. You asked the same thing. The Kurds are saying the Kurds are saying the same thing. You are trying to pretend the difference is she's Asian and he's white. The difference is he's in prison and therefore can't come back. Let's Let's bring in Liz. Let's bring in Elizabeth. So the difference is that you can strip somebody of their citizenship if they have another citizenship. So I think the, the UK government is arguing that uh, she could get uh, Bangladeshi, Bangladeshi citizenship. Which the Bangladesh government said no. That's right. To. And, so, and Jack Less has Canadian citizenship. Oh. Yeah. Yes, he's not exactly. Coming, he's not so coming back. Look, he's in prison in Kurdistan. He's probably going to get the death penalty. He's probably going to get the But you're accusing people of racism when there is no basis for that claim whatsoever. Absolutely. You know, you shouldn't lie to the listeners. I'm not lying. You know the reason that Jack Less is not coming back is he's in jail. Let me give you my proof. So there's been about 150 uh, uh, cases of uh, people who've had their citizenship removed, Mm. okay? Out of the hundred, the Home Office is still not publishing all the data. From the cases that we deal with and from the information we have, mm. uh, apart from one person, every single one of those people are people of colour, whether it's to do with people in the Windrush scramble or uh, other things. Mm. And majority of them are Muslims. This, this, is, this is the fact at the moment. Mm. Let the Home Office actually disprove that. We've challenged the Home Office to publish the data and disprove it. So if the second thing is, Muslim if we look at the, how the Shamima Begum uh, story is being portrayed, 
I mean, just recently we saw how a shooting range actually used the face as a, yeah. a, a target, yeah. yes. right? Now, th this is this is the level of dehumanization that has taken place. I, I agree with uh, one thing. One thing. One thing that was said uh, by what, mm. uh, Andre and others is that look. What, should, what, what does a uh, responsible civilized society do that believes in the rule of law? It never disowns its citizen. It brings its citizen back and says, puts them in a court and says, this is the evidence against you, mm. okay? And if you're found guilty, this is the consequences wait, that wait, you deal so, with. Wait, wait. So, what so, we don't do is say, oh, it's somebody else's problem. What we don't do is go in a camp and, uh, with, with the army, snatch her baby from her arms, and just say, you know, listen, good listen, luck okay, to you. Okay. Can I just, so, can I just exactly make this point, just Femi? Said. I think it's okay. an important point. Look, Shamima Begin wants to return to the UK because her terrorist organisation has been defeated. That is the reason. She is not remorseful in any way whatsoever. Now, I think the point about, Pakistan, about Bangladesh is this. Look, she is as much of a scrounger as she is a terrorist. She just wants a taxpayer teat to suckle from. And Bangladesh won't stick her on the social in the same way the UK will. And the reason why that's important is this. You give a Bengali citizenship and she will never go there. So it's not Bangladesh's you problem. You can't give her okay, Bengali okay, citizenship. Okay, uh, <laughs> so first thing I'd say is that none of the points that you made, you made are all of them go towards her being a horrible person. None of them say that her legal status has changed. Uh, Elizabeth. So I was just going to bring up the, the case of Denmark, the example of Denmark, which has had a, a disproportionate number of foreign fighters, and then those foreign fighters have returned. So Denmark early on said, OK, let's make sure they, they, they don't engage in any mm. similar behavior again. Let's, let's make sure that we don't uh, foster that culture among others. Mm. And so they essentially rewarded yeah. them with... We've, we've also with had UK okay, people okay, return okay, as well but, from Syria. Yeah. yeah, but so the Danish Almost model was, 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 really, was, was really interesting. They gave them uh, flats, jobs, uh, social support workers mm. and so forth. And then others in Denmark were saying, well, hang on, <laughs> I'm waiting for a flat and they get that. So it's, it's so difficult to know what the right thing is because really, uh, if, if you extract revenge, you, you, uh, you get even more uh, of this... Just, just to wow. Okay, just to um, uh, so move on to a couple of other topics quickly. Russia is testing a internet kill switch, where they're basically going to shut off the internet for a bit, just basically to try what would happen in the event of um, uh, of losing internet. Also, there's issue. I mean, you've, you yourself, you've talked about how um, you don't believe that the two percent um, spending on it for NATO is, is wise. Why, why is that? So uh, we're talking about specifically about Germany. So NATO has this benchmark where all member states have to spend 2% of GDP on defense. And, mm. and several countries do, the UK, the US, uh, very importantly, um, Poland, Estonia, and Greece spends 2%, but for completely different reasons because it competes with Turkey. Mm. But um, so the big question is Germany, which is currently at about 1.2%. And and so Trump, as you know, keeps saying to Germany, you have to spend more, otherwise we, the US won't be helping you. Mm. And Germans are just very uneasy about more defense spending, the, the wider public. Um, they were uneasy about, they are uneasy about essentially anything that their armed forces do. Mm. And uh, but of course, if you're a member of an alliance and you've signed up to mm. a particular to, to the obligations mm. of that alliance, then you should fulfill them. So that's. But, but do you think it, you think it should, do you think it should be more? Do you think it should be less? Do you think that the, the notion of a target is doesn't make sense? Well. I don't think it makes very much sense, but it's the easiest way in which you can get all members to, to essentially do the same thing. Uh, so it's, it's completely ridiculous because 2% in Estonia is something completely different from 2% in the US. But it's just it's a very blunt tool, but it's the easiest tool. The, mm. the best tool, it, to my mind, would be uh, output uh, uh, me a measure for, for output. So this is what your country should be able to do. And then, you know, countries could spend 10% or 1% as long as they got that done. Mm. But yeah. it's, it's just very hard it, to implement. Yeah, it's, it's an arbitrary random thing which doesn't really actually achieve the top. My, my, final, my final question would be, this is for all of you, um, let's do one, one, one at a time. What would be the one thing that, that the country should do to improve its security? Andre first. What we should do to improve our security? Yeah. I don't know. I think we do pretty well, actually. So I'm not, I'm, I don't have any major personal concerns about mm. it. I think there's obviously issues related to the European U leaving the EU, which I think is, uh, but that is specific kind of to Northern Ireland. Mm. But I think if we get through that, look, you know, we can argue all day about people like Shamina Begum and whatever. The number of people who engaged in terrorism in the UK is pretty low. And, and I think the likelihood of me being a victim of terrorism anytime soon, I think, is also very, very low indeed. So I don't have too many concerns. Cool. OK, Elizabeth? I think uh, everybody should learn... Um 
first aid training in school or through their workplace. Because if we look at the sort of security incidents we have, it's it's usually traffic accidents, mm. uh, weather-related accidents, so storms, floods, and so forth. And most of us have no idea what to do, and that can be very incapacitating for for communities. For example, you know, the British Army often has to go out to Somerset to pile sandbags. So what if all of us? Uh, as part of going to school, going to university, working, if we could all earn this sort of first aid or first response certificate, and then we'd be able to help in cool. case of a really emergency. Always be, always be prepared. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I do uh, agree with uh, what the other two have said. I think um, what we have to, though, realise is we, do, we, we haven't made our country safer in the last 10 to uh, 20 years mm. with the raft of legislations that's come in. Uh, we've securitised our health uh, industry. We've securitised our primary school teachers. Uh, I, I mean, everything is true. We, we actually, as uh, citizens of this country, are losing more of our privacy uh, rights um, and 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 this is this is the big brother thing uh, that's happening. So I think you know, look, uh, all these uh, foreign uh, interventions and everything else needs to be looked at properly. Mm. We need to actually have an ethical foreign policy, as uh, um, I think his name was Cook, Robin Cook, uh, said. You know, mm. b- before he passed away, this is what's needed. We need to look at what is it we're doing in other countries, like the example mm. you gave, is that making people hate us over here. Okay, uh, and um, that, that's, that's a very good answer. I mean, the, the, also in terms of being prepared, the idea that we should all um, have a degree of first, first aid training, um, although perhaps making everybody prepared isn't quite going as far as, I might even go quite as far as Donald Trump would go, that every, you should arm teachers. There should be no weapons involved. Can I just defend arming <laughs> teachers? Oh, uh, sorry, we, 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 are, we, okay. are, we are then. But I mean, he, he, did, he did say the phrase, um, schools, there's no weapon, schools are gun-free zones that makes some very dangerous places, you, which, I, which I find to be. If you can't ban guns, absolute, you've got to arm people. You, well, you, you can ban guns because well, it's, it's, it's what we've we done in the UK. <laughs> Um, (laughs) But guys, obviously, this is a very, very interesting topic where there are very wildly differing views, which has made this very, very fun for me. This has been The Floor is Yours. It will be available on Spotify. Um, We will see you again next week. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com.